0: All right, let's get started here this morning. We're going to press on in our study here. Sanctification. Eventually. Eventually we will be sanctified and started. (laughs) Good morning. Good to have you with us. Um, we're going to review just for a moment, so find your way to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul's letter to the church at Corinth with all their troubles, but he had good news for them, and we want to be reminded of that. We're considering for our summer study this book by Tim Chester, You Can Change. It's a book of hope, because any one of us in this room can look back over a lot of struggles, a lot of problems. A lot of frustrations, a lot of, I can do better than this, a lot of people confronting us with our problems. That's just the way life is, and yet the Bible continues to offer us this hope that you can change. Uh, And that big theological word is sanctification, this continual maturing and changing to be more and more like Christ. Christ. So the point of studying the book is to understand biblical change and, of course, to see that change happening in our lives. Hopefully, as we press on into the fall, there will be some thoughts in our heads that are getting us further down the line in understanding how we keep on growing. Change takes place in our lives when we see the glory of Christ. When we see him unfold in all the types and pictures of the Old Testament, when we see him incarnate, taking on human flesh, and uh, the gospel accounts recording his life, the way he thought, the way he spoke, uh, the way he interacted with people. Then in all the rest of the New Testament, it's telling us what that life was all about and what it accomplished. When we look at Christ, we have the hope of change. He is the standard. He is what we are to be aiming for. There was a poet in the 1700s, lived into the 1800s. He was raised as a Christian. Uh, He was a poet and an artist, Uh, one of the, probably the top 10 most famous British, you know, kind of uh, artistic type people, William Blake. And he's well known for this simple phrase, we become what we behold. We become what we behold. Now, That's deep and philosophical, and it's not until you realize he was raised in a Bible-believing home and seems to have built on that foundation, even in his understanding of art and beauty. Um, It betrays, though, a knowledge of of Scripture. We become what we behold. Now, in more modern days, uh, Paul Tripp, in his book, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands, Uh, which is a simple book for helping us understand as lay people how we can help and counsel other people. Because sometimes we think a counselor has to be, you know, certified, professional, you know, teacher. Well, that's true. There is a word that we use. We use that word counselor in that sense. But all of us can counsel and can point people to Christ and show them the truth. So we are instruments in the Redeemer's hands. He picks you up as a tool and he, he's carving Christ-likeness into someone else by using your example and your words. That's the point of Tripp's book. In that book, he says, quote, human beings by their very nature are worshipers. Worship is not something we do, rather it defines who we are. You cannot divide human beings into those who worship and those who don't, because everybody worships. It's just a matter of what or whom. So his point is, the beholding is all important. We behold, and it draws us in. So what are you beholding? Paul Tripp, William Blake, and anyone else that wants to talk about beholding and becoming Would be borrowing from God's truth in 2 Corinthians 3. The Holy Spirit led the Apostle Paul to write to the church at Corinth about this matter of change. He gives the illustration of Moses who had gone up into the mountain and seen a glimpse of the glory of God. His face was glowing. The people were afraid to even be around him, and so they asked him to put a veil over his face. And Moses is, or uh, Paul is building on that example that they would have well known from their. Jewish history, and he's kind of transitioning that into this idea of beholding so that it changes us, just as Moses beheld and it changed him. And Paul writes in verse 18 of chapter 3, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image. What image? The image of the glory of the Lord. From one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So we all, beholding the glory, are being transformed. So the subject is we, the verb is being transformed. That's, that's the sentence. We are being transformed, but there's that participle phrase describing how we are transformed. It's giving us details, and the details are we are being transformed by beholding. In that beholding is the hope of change. So we could finish here and and be reminded that, okay, we're going into another week, and Hebrews 12 says, run the race with endurance. But running the race assumes progress, so we could say change, we're being changed And how do we run that race? How are we changed? We run looking unto Jesus. So it's not an isolated idea in scripture that this hope of change, of success in the Christian life, of progress will be defined by your beholding. When we talk about stepping off the path of righteousness, James 1 says we're drawn away, in a sense, by our beholding. We are drawn away by our own lust and we're enticed. We see something and we want it. We behold it and now we go after it. We will become it. Why? Because where your treasure is, there will your heart be. All through the scripture we find this beholding leads to becoming. And so it's all important to be asking what are we beholding? The hope of change lies in beholding the right standard, the right image. All through the Old Testament, God's people were warned about idolatry, warned about the culture around them. Uh, Don't intermarry with these other religious groups is a a repeated command to God's people, the Israelites. It wasn't a racial barrier. It was a religious barrier. Uh, God didn't want them buying into having seen how the world is, how these other cultures were. He didn't want them beholding that and becoming like it, being drawn into that. So what are you beholding? What did you behold this past week? It's not enough to just take in conservatism or, or patriotism and, and soak up all the news about who's going to run and how it's going to unfold. Um, helpful, uh, maybe even important. Uh, for our citizenship, but it can't be the sum total of our, of our beholding, of our, of our purpose-defining observations. We need to be seeing something bigger. Uh, it's not even enough to take something uh, that might have even more biblical roots, let's say family or marriage. It's not enough to say, I need to focus on my marriage. I need to focus on my family. That's good and that's right. Uh, But you may do that as an idolater. Um, And so, behold, Christ, run that race of citizenship looking unto Jesus. Taking all that news and those podcasts, looking unto Jesus. Think about how to be a better spouse, but do that looking unto Jesus. Whatever the verb is of your Christian growth, you have to have that descriptive participle that tells us how. Looking unto Jesus beholding. And so get that beholding right. And now we have the hope of change. Chapter one was the question, what? What do you want to change? And we tried to fill in the blanks of things that we would want to change. It would be different for all of us because your sin struggle this past week was different than someone else's. So what do you want to change? And once we have that in mind, we need to look at that and think, now, wait a minute. Is the way I'm thinking about changing my anger, my lust, my covetousness, my fear of man, whatever it is, is my, is my way of thinking of that as big as God's idea? Is my thought of change as big as God's thought? Because sometimes we fall short of real change because we think I, I only want to be done with the bad. I don't want that. I don't want that on my resume this week but we forget the instruction of Scripture is to, to put off that old man that is defined by sin and the old nature and to put on the new nature, which Ephesians tells us is created in the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So maybe maybe we're a little short-sighted when we think of change because we think, don't be angry. I don't want to be angry this week. Okay. But why not? So that question, is your idea of change as big as God's? He wants to change your heart and to make you like his son. That will obviously affect all those fruits that are coming out of the heart. But in asking, what do you want to change? We rightly then follow up with chapter 2, why? Why do you want to change that area of your life that stood out this past week as needing change? why would you want to change that? Why do you want to change your reactions, your anger? Why do you want to be a better spouse or parent or friend? Why do you want to overcome laziness or apathy, materialism? Why do we want to change? And I think we'd be helped to think through, how how does this motivation go wrong? We might want to change, but when we ask why, there are some answers that would reveal that we don't always want to change for the right reasons. And I'm not necessarily looking for the exact answer the author gives, but can you think this through and see why you or someone else would want to change for maybe a reason that isn't as solid as it should be? What are some some faulty motivations for changing our behaviors? Pride. Pride. Unfold that a little. What are you thinking on that? Um, I'm more concerned about um,
1: almost like a Pharisee goal, uh, being able to walk in the in the community, in the church, and say, look what I've accomplished in my sanctification spiritually.
0: Yeah, that's good. Uh, we can all fall into that trap, changing because we want other people to see us as something better. What else? Yeah, Caitlin? Fear of um, others, fear of not a right fear of God, a fear of kind of a vindictive, um, punitive God. Right. So this thought of, you know, something bad could happen, or I'll be punished, or I'll miss out on something, Uh, so I I better be right so I don't lose, basically, Uh, have some consequence. Uh, Paul, do you have something? Very similar to what Caleb was saying, and what you just said is just fear of consequences. Okay. Avoiding some consequences, minimizing consequences, trying to get out of the pain of what this sin cycle creates. Sure. And and clearly the Bible uses consequences to to help us, to correct. That's what chastening is. Uh, The Old Testament spells it out clearly. Obedience brings blessing. Disobedience brings a curse. But that's designed to curb the heart uh, to steer us down a path. And yet at times we, we adapt a very surface kind of approach and we just, I will do right, almost like the rat running through the maze to get the reward or avoid the shock. And it seems to lack something of the essence of our obedience of worship. Roy? Sin in our life makes us feel very uncomfortable.
1: We want to get rid of the discomfort, but we stoop to something less than crying out to Jesus, crying out, confessing, and crying for grace, crying for mercy. I don't know that this answers your question. I don't know how to format it. I just see that as a an overriding action that is not really based in reality and truth. We in some of our trials even our sins, are crafted to drive us to Jesus.
0: So you're kind of capturing like that feeling that we would have when we we know this isn't working out. Um, Whether it was painful consequences we've talked about or not, but there's something there that it doesn't feel right, so let's at least get rid of that. But it's... Maybe it's like a pragmatic approach. All right, let's try something that does work, but it falls short. That's, I think, what is essential for us to understand. It's falling short of uh, a true and helpful motivation that will bring about real heart change. What else? Any other faulty motivations or... uh, We've touched on a couple of ideas that the author included. He, he gives us three, and see how your thinking fits in here, because I think we've covered a few of these. He lists, number one, a faulty motivation for why we would change. He, he describes it as trying to prove myself to God. Um, you think God will be impressed with you or will bless you in some way. You might, you might hear it in, for example, uh, a single person could say, listen, I've been trying to live for the Lord and God still hasn't given me a spouse. Well, that betrays a motivation, like I was doing this in order to prove something to God, like I'm ready now, I'm good enough, I'm in a good place, so you should do this. Um, oftentimes, we just long to have some part in fixing our sinful tendencies. We, we want to be capable, we want to be able to improve, to self-help, and that's a wrong motivation. God has done the fixing of our sin through the work of Christ. That's the theological foundation that we're, we're stepping off, and here we are, we've missed the foundation, and we're trying to build change, and it doesn't happen because we've missed the foundation. God has done the fixing. It's possible through Jesus Christ, not on our own. That's called grace. But this idea of grace is sometimes something we stumble over. We think we, we should be making amends or uh, we think somehow um, any improvement that we can make will, will demonstrate we're really serious about living the Christian life. And it's just a, it's a misguided motivation that says, I am proving my worth to God. I might even believe it's totally of his grace that I'm saved, but my response feels obligatory. Like, I, I, I have to do this. After all, it's, you know, look what he's done for me, and so I, I've got to show that I'm worth that sacrifice. Now, we have to be careful because there are ways in which we express an overflowing of the heart in love, in true worship, in gratitude. And at times in the poetry, especially of the the hymnody of the church, we would use the language of debt or something I owe. But we have to be very careful to understand, do I really believe this author is saying God has this accounting system and he, he sacrificed Christ for us, and now he's watching us pile up all this merit or good work in return, and I'm paying back that debt. As if I could get to heaven someday and say, good, we're even now. I did it. No. So when Watts writes, but drops of grief could ne'er repay the debt of love I owe, he's not saying there's this debt hanging over me and I'm making payments on it like a house payment. He's simply describing this overwhelming gratitude, this act of worship. Because his point was, were the whole realm of nature mine, it would be a present far too small. There is nothing we can do to repay the love of God. But gratitude from the heart is going to feel like an obligation or a debt. It, it It just wells up within us. We want to. But even in that wanting, should we use the language of paying a debt or owing, it's actually showing that there's the heart response to what God has done for us. You see, what we have to remember is that you are not accepted by what you've done. You are accepted by what Christ has done. So when you put your faith in Christ, you're you're hidden in him. And so when Christ walks into heaven, you kind of walk in. With him, you're in Christ. You're like a a mother, or Christ is like the mother hen and all these chicks are under her wings and you all just kind of make it. Where If he goes into heaven, you go. If he's righteous enough, you're righteous enough. You're in Christ. God can't love you more if you clean up your life and keep growing and getting better and better. And God can't love you less if you make a mess of it this week and have to repent again. Because God's love and acceptance are not based on you. God's love and acceptance of you is based on Christ and whether you've joined yourself by faith to him. Listen to Ephesians 1. Having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he has made us accepted in the beloved. God's plan has always been that you would be adopted as sons, you would be accepted, not because of what you've done, but you would be accepted in his beloved son. And so we have to nail down this foundation. My acceptance before God is not based on what I do. It's based on what Christ has done. Now, building on that foundation, growing in the Christian life, we sin. We mess up. So what happens then? What happens then? Are we no longer accepted? No, we have to remember there's this judicial act of justification. I am declared righteous when I put my faith in Christ right then that heavenly ledger shows on my account perfect law keeping every commandment checked off he's done it all now i know i didn't do that that's the righteousness of christ credited to my account and all my sinful record was given to jesus and he paid for it on the cross so that's clear so what am i what am i repairing what am I reconciling when as a Christian I sin I'm not I'm not going back and fixing the ledger now I'm dealing with the relationship with my heavenly father and just like you've you know when your kids lied to you or you know they've sinned and now they're trying to avoid you know you know when they're lying and they do too um And you've got to deal with that. And once that's dealt with, then there's that reconciliation. They're not avoiding you. They're not trying to get away from this conversation because you've repaired that fellowship. There's nothing between anymore. That's the ongoing nature of the Christian life. So even now as believers, we're not trying to prove ourselves to God. When we sin, we don't double down and try to do better to show God, I can do this. No. I keep coming back to Christ has provided the righteousness for my account. And out of a heart of love and gratitude, I want to please my heavenly Father. And when I sin, I confess that sin, I repent of it, and I find his mercy, and we go on restored. So don't fall into the trap of trying to prove yourself to God when we think of sanctification, of change. We hit this one clearly on the head. Number two, faulty motivation. Number two, to prove myself to other people. You've probably tried this to impress others, to fit in with others, to win their approval. There's two problems that the author lists with this faulty motivation of changing in order to prove myself to other people. One, you tend to pretend. You tend, you're likely to pretend more than you should, right? You hide your faults, even little ones, because you don't even want little mistakes to reflect poorly on you. You want others to think you've got it all together. You're like Main Street, you know, and Tombstone, Arizona, back in the Western days, all those false front kind of buildings and not nearly as much nice construction behind it. Well... We, we don't want to be people of facade. But if we're always worried about what others think, we're going to paint the outside really nice and not, not let anyone know what's going on behind that false front. We don't want people to know of our struggles, which is unfortunate because that also means we're not ever really giving them much understanding of what grace looks like in our lives either. So you tend to pretend... And two, the other problem with this motivation of trying to prove yourself to others is that you're using the wrong standard. You're looking around and you have some image in your head of what the model Christian looks like, and so you're going to present that. But that's the wrong standard. And Paul warns the Corinthians, as he's addressing all their problems, he he warns them not to get into comparing themselves with themselves because that's not wise. You could look like the best person in the church and have a heart that's a complete disaster. Read Isaiah chapter one, and God's telling the people of Israel that, that God himself says, I, I'm weary of these, the sacrifices and, and, and the worship that you bring to the temple. Would that your hearts were turned toward me. He said, enough of the outside, enough of all the the looking like you're a Christian. What matters is the heart. We use the wrong standard. That standard is given to us in Ephesians. God has equipped the church with those ministerial gifts of the pastor teacher so that the church would be equipped to do the work of the ministry, so that the whole church would grow together, it says and come to this level of maturity or sanctification. And the standard there in the text is we would come to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's the standard. So we must be done with thinking that my change is because I'm trying to prove myself to others. God says, don't do that. There's one standard. Keep looking at Christ. And when you realize you're not to that standard you press on, running the race, looking unto Jesus. That's probably, theologically, the first one's probably most significant. We misunderstand the Bible's teaching about the sufficiency of Christ, so we struggle to change effectively. Practically speaking, the most common mistake is probably this comparison to others trying to prove ourselves to others i want to sh- i want to prove to my spouse that i can be a better spouse i want to prove to the church that i that i'm a better church man i want to prove to my parents that i can be a good kid and, and we we adopt a faulty standard of what goodness looks like what perfection looks like and we'll make people believe that it applies to us faulty motivation number 3 after proving myself to God, proving myself to others, there's a mistake in changing or trying to change when we try to prove something to ourselves. We commit to change so that we will feel better about ourselves. This might have been something of what Roy was trying to describe. We know something's not right and and we want something else, but we fall short if we only think, I want to feel better about myself. Now, you might not use that language because you think that sounds like some kind of pop psychology. But you probably use language like, well, I didn't mean that. I'm better than that. Or I'm so so mad at myself for losing my temper. And it seems right, doesn't it? You know, you hear somebody say that in their apology. I'm so mad at myself. But what they're really saying is, I have this image of self that I'm trying to present, and I fell short of the glory of self. And it frustrates me because I know I'm a good person, and I want to be a good person, and I'm mad at myself for lust. I'm mad at myself for envy. I'm mad at myself for fear of man. But we're trying to prove to self that self is good enough. And I'm going to change so that I will be the best form of me. Rather than seeing my sin as an offense against God, I fell short of the glory of God. There's the standard. And I can't get to that standard by myself. So true change will have to be something other than me and the mirror on the wall. It'll have to be the mirror of God's word that shows me something more. You see, the problem with trying to prove to myself that I'm better than this is that my measuring stick is just a pretty good me. Instead of a measuring stick that exhausts the stature of Christ, I'm only using the measuring stick of 5'8", you know? That's how tall Adam is. There's the measuring stick. If I can be a pretty good form of me, then that's a good day. I'm living the Christian life as I should. But a pretty good form of me isn't the standard. It's the perfection of Christ. We must get over our sin being offense against me, against my image. It's back to that facade. It, it's almost like a sin, you know, puts a big stain on our facade and, and now we're mad because we gotta get out there and prime that spot and paint it and get it looking good again and that's going to take some time before everybody thinks I'm foolproof, mistakeless. So beware of that thinking. Next time you think that you let yourself down, examine that thought. What, 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 am I, what do I mean by that? Why do I feel mad at myself? Now, believe me, I, I know what you mean when you say you, know, you, you left your key somewhere and you're mad at yourself. I, I'm not talking about those kind of things. But when we sin, and in our effort to apologize or to confess, when it, when it becomes me-centered, I need to do better, I'm really sorry, I won't let this happen again, um, just break that down a little bit and see if there's anything more that could be done to get to the biblical hope for change that doesn't involve just simply a better form of yourself. Roy, you were thinking on something there, and I may have rambled long enough to lose it. There, there's there's something that
1: probably has to be a balancing fact in here, and that is work out your salvation with fear and trembling. What's the fear? What's to tremble if it isn't the fact that my actions actually reflect a heart that is unregenerate? So some of this discomfort is is coming from a fruitful place of commanded, working out, and and, and having some fear about your own deceptive heart. And maybe part of the problem is, we're doing this struggling and striving over marquee sins, you know, like, oh, that was lustful. Oh, I lied, I coveted. Well, God is love. Anyone who lives in God loves and if i am not loving is that not one sin and two a possible reflection of an unregenerate heart so some of these struggles i think are prescribed struggles that we should be having in an ongoing basis because heaven forbid you may be able to avoid all the marquee sins and still walk to heaven's gate and argue with god why you should be let in And he says, I never knew
0: you. Yeah, I think there is a place for the fear and trembling. Uh, Proverbs would say in the simple equation, we confess and forsake. So there is a repulsion, uh, a a response against sin, which I I should hate that, uh, as the psalmist would say. Um, So I don't think we have to... Eliminate all language of what I feel or think. Um, But I think if it's true change we're after, it will be, regardless of what sin we're putting on the table, um, it will be uh, I need to change this, and my change is going to come about not because I want to be a better church member, Uh, you know, I want to. Be a, look like I'm a better person. It will have to be because uh, of what Christ has done, and I can rest in that. My response to Christ must drive our change. We can't prove ourselves to God. We can't show him that we're good enough. Every effort to do so is an insult because he has said, Christ is sufficient. Believe in him. And when we say, but, but I think I can do this, Now you've just pit yourself against the perfect, sufficient Savior and your best effort at a good work. So be done with proving yourself to God. Be done with proving yourself to others. Um, They're not going to be the one to evaluate or to judge you. They're not the standard. They have their own struggles. There are all kinds of reasons why the comparison isn't good, and yet we want to do it. We will want to do it this week. Uh, You'll want to do it today, going home. You will have noticed somebody, you'll notice the way they dress, you'll notice the way they dealt with their kids, you notice the way they spoke to someone, and you'll want to think that must be the standard, but it's not. Can you learn from them? Absolutely. Can their example exhort and challenge? Absolutely. But don't change to be like them or to, to be seen as they're seen. And certainly don't fall into the trap of trying to prove uh, something to ourselves, um, We know what self is. We don't need a better form of us. That's the old nature. We need a new nature. Uh, We need the nature of Christ being formed in us. He's the measuring stick. All this proving, proving to God, proving to others, proving to self, uh, it, it will never work. You can't change enough to impress God. You can't change enough really to impress others. Surely you've learned this by now. Um, Even in marriage, sometimes we probably think we can do everything right and we'll never disappoint that person. Well, the nature of close relationships are you can do everything right and it might not be perceived right by the other person or you misunderstood and somehow you still disappoint them. So it's it's really an ever-moving target. Not in a bad way, it's just the nature of relationships. Nobody can ever please everybody no matter how desperately they want to. We certainly see this in like cultural positions. You take a stand for something and you're going to please some and you're going to displease someone else. So you try to accommodate the people you didn't please and now you've offended some of the other people. Or by giving the mouse a cookie, right? You know those books. Uh, He's going to want a glass of milk. Uh, so, some of you are like, well, I don't understand that analogy at all. Uh, well, you haven't read enough about mice and mooses, I guess. So, um, the nature is, if you try to please people, you'll think you have accomplished it, and there's probably going to be something else they want you to change. You can't, you can't do this. It doesn't work. You, the idea puts me at the center of change, and that's not what our book is about. It's not saying, let's focus on you and how you can do better, how we can get you some tools, and you can change. No, remember, it's beholding you can become. Uh, We have to have the right motivation. You don't have to prove you're worthy. That will never happen. It didn't happen in your salvation. It's not going to happen in your sanctification. Galatians 2 Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. And just in case we missed it, he says it once more, for by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. The point is you can never do enough to prove something to God to prove you're good enough, you're righteous enough, it just doesn't work. If you try to prove yourself by good works, we are saying that the work that Christ accomplished is insufficient. Even if you think it's significant, you're saying it's insufficient by exercising your strength to try to add some kind of work That would please God. Ephesians has made it clear. You are accepted. You are seen as worthy in the beloved. If you are on your own, you will always be unacceptable. You will not be good enough. The psalmist says, who can ascend the holy hill? Who can stand in the presence of God? No one can do that. If God should mark iniquities, who could stand before him? However... If he's looking at Christ and you are sheltered in Christ by faith, then you are righteous. You're accepted in the beloved. These motivations for change, and there may be others, other faulty motivations or nuances of them, just realize that they're subtle, um, solid believers who sin and then are trying to turn that around rightly. The Bible says, repent, Push that sin into the light so that darkness doesn't help it grow like mold in the back of your refrigerator. Push it into the light, deal with it, and let's get on running the race, looking unto Jesus. But just remember, in in that process of change and maturing, uh, these these subtle lines of thinking are going to creep in, you know, you're, you're going to have thoughts like, oh, I need to read my Bible today, but I'm, re- I got, I'm running out the door. Oh, but if I don't read my Bible, what if something bad happens? And it's going to betray this mindset that, that if I do the right things, good things will happen. If I don't do the right things, then I'm not going to prove my worthiness to God. There may be consequences. No, that's not how it works. I think we're right to focus on the texts of scripture, often in the New Testament, that tell us that we should walk worthy of our calling. Well, what does that mean? What, what worth am I trying to establish or prove by obedience to that command, to walk worthy? Well, if we take a look at those instructions, we're going to see that it's the same theme of the the New Testament, that we become what we are. We should be becoming what we already are. You are called to be saints, Paul writes to the church at Corinth, and then he spends the next 16 chapters telling them how they should be becoming more and more as saints. You already are saints and now become like saints. So it's this process of becoming what you already are. What has God made you? He's he's made you a partaker of the divine nature, 2 Peter 1 says. He's given you all the precious promises to help you know what you should become. But you already are a saint. You're washed, you're sanctified, you're justified, he says in 1 Corinthians 6. Now live like it. So become what you are. The walking worthy doesn't mean you produce worthiness. It shows you live in such a way that reflects that God has already seen you as worthy in Christ. You're showing Christ-likeness. That's the worthiness. He could have just said, walk like Christ walks. But he says, instead, you were called to become like Christ. Pursue that kind of worth. Your worth in Christ. He's not asking us to produce some new worth, as if Christ is really impressive in God's eyes, but boy, so are you. No, he's saying there's one worth, the perfection of Christ, his son. Now, you walk in that. Keep looking like that. The measure of the stature, the fullness of Christ, that's what you're after. That's the identity we're striving to to unfold. It's what we are, we are in Christ. Now we're trying to demonstrate that day in and day out. And the Bible is clear, you're you're not going to be perfect. So in this hope of change, what we're not saying is that you're going to be perfect and once you get there, you'll be done with the struggle. The Bible's just saying run the race with endurance. There's a few of you that still hit the road and do some running. Maybe you used to. Evelina, you still running track back there? Not not running back there, but, you know, you're back there, and you run track somewhere else. Uh, yeah, cross country. I know, Steve, you're probably hitting the road still, and I, I don't know. I'm trying to look around. Who else looks like runners? Ah, oh, the Tuckers, you guys probably do some running. Uh, you know what it's like to, to run? and yes you're tired yes you're feeling the burn and sting and pain and you want to you run with endurance so we know endurance defines this christian life it's a struggle but we do it looking unto jesus he he authored and he and he finished this life of faith and he says you can do this because i already have for you so take heart what do you want to change we label that oh Look at last week. I know what I need to change. Okay, but it's not just, not just picking the leaves off the surface. It's, it's getting to the root. God wants to deal with the root. He wants to change our heart. Why? Not to please others, not to prove something to God or self, but to change to become more like Christ. It's an act of worship. And so we'll press on in the study of change Uh, But hopefully some of these thoughts rooted in scripture will will give us the hope that we need to, to see some real fruitful change in our lives.